is proudly brought to you by Wordsworth Books. It's the first Monday of the month, so it's Book Choice on Fine Music Radio 101.3, various other frequencies which you'll find on our web, www.fmr.co.za. This cheerful hour, Andrew Marshback's Wordsworth Books has a bag full of good books to cheer us through the chill. We talked to John Hanks, conservation expert and head of WWWF in Africa, about his passionate and deeply persuasive book, Operation Lock and the War on Rhino Poaching. Vanessa Levenstein reviews two books, very different in style and genre, both exploring the quest for love and belonging. The Course of Love, a novel written by philosopher, writer and television presenter Alain de Bouton, and Finding Martha Lost by Caroline Wallace, the pseudonym for Caroline Smales. Philip Todris chats to Man Booker Prize winner, the South African novelist Christopher Hope, about his caustic new novel, Jim Fish, while Philippa Schaefitz finds comfort food in My Cape Malay Kitchen by Karima Isaacs. Little comfort in heart-stopping, chart Hopping thrillers chosen by Mike Fitzjames. Melvin Minar has the intriguingly named Sightings of the Sacred, David Nordee's, oh, and its subtitled Cattle in Uganda, Madagascar, and India. The photographer is Daniel Nordee. Beverly Rosemuller finds Joyce Carol Oates's The Sacrifice powerful and gripping. And don't go away. We've an easy PC competition question coming up for you to win one of two 200 Rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. And do remember that this whole program will be podcast in a few days on www.fmr.co.za. Andrew Marshbanks, what to read for the jolly months of June? Hi, thanks, Gory. Well, I thought I'd start off today, and I haven't done this for a while, with the South African bestseller lists, just to fill you all in on what is selling in South Africa. And number one on the list is Wilbur Smith. There's no surprises there. Wilbur writes a really good thriller, uh, come family story, and his latest one, Predator, is right up there. And together with it there is the David Baldacci, who also writes really nice, good political thrillers, nice whodunits. They're, they're great, fast reading. And with them is the Paula Hawkins, The Girl on the Train. This has been in our bestseller list for a long time, and I think with the movie coming out, it's going to be staying there for a, a long, long time. Coming up there is Sylvia Day with her new one, part of the, the sort of the bonking romances and together with Fifty Shades of Grey, those sort of ones. She's there with One With You and Nora Roberts and Jojo Moyes. And we were very thrilled to see that Don Pinnock's book, Gang Town, is up there at number 12. I reviewed this book last month. This is about the gangs of Cape Town and the history of it. Fascinating reading, wonderful book. Alex LSEF is at number 22 with Cold Case Confessions. And let's just come here. Justice Malala is still there. We have now begun our descent. And Elon Musk, the biography of Elon Musk by Ashley Vance, is at number 29. 
and that's wonderful reading, a fascinating person. And that is the low carb is, Latin, is still there. The richest man in Babylon is still there. Jojo Moyes and I am Pilgrim, of course. I wonder when Terry Hayes is going to write another book because I am Pilgrim is one of the greatest thrillers that was written. I think it was written about two years ago. Still on the bestseller list, and it's wonderful. If you haven't read it, you should read it. I know Mike reviewed it here, and he gave it a brilliant review, and I read it after his review. It is a wonderful book. That's I Am Pilgrim, Terry Hayes. Okay, and now let me just go through some of the stuff that's just come into the bookshop. The first one that caught my eye is the new Page Nick book. Now, Page Nick, as you know, is a columnist, a Sunday Times columnist, and she did that wonderful book, takes the mickey out of Banting and Tim Notes, etc., called Death by Carbs. That was a wonderful bestseller. And she's just written this sort of travel-come-romance book called Dutch Courage. Her books are lovely, easy reading, very South African, lovely tongue-in-cheek humor, books that you really love to settle down with, read, and enjoy. They're very good local. And this one is set in, in Amsterdam, where our female protagonist goes to Amsterdam and gets entangled in various shenanigans there. It's called Dutch Courage by Paige Nick, and lovely reading that. Another local book that has just come into paperback is The Seed Thief by Jackie Lang. Now, Jackie Lang was, I think, the book's editor for O Magazine, the Oprah magazine. Great taste in books she has, and she's a great writer. She really is. This is about a, a botanist called Maddie Bellany. She's asked to travel to Brazil to collect rare seeds from a plant that could cure cancer. Securing the seeds would be a coup for the seed bank in Cape Town where she works. But Brazil is the country of her birth and home to her estranged father. And, of course, lots of things happen to her. She gets entangled in a bit of politics, crime, and, of course, a bit of romance. Very, very good. Jackie Lang, The Sea Thief. And that is 220 Rand. Now, I must just mention, we have a, a book that we're selling hugely and very well in Garden Center. It's called The Edible Atlas. Around the World in 39 Cuisines. She does, as, as we all know, traveling. What is traveling but scenery and eating? We all love to eat when we travel. And as you go to different countries, it's a different food that fascinates. We all love Italian food. We love going Indian style, etc. When we eat, we travel. And so begins the Edible Atlas. It's a journey around the globe demystifying the flavors, ingredients, and techniques at the heart of 39 cuisines. What is the origin of kimchi in Korea? And I remember when kimchi was first sort of discovered by the West, it was mocked enormously as a sort of fermented cabbage smelly dish. It's now on pizzas. It's everywhere. We love kimchi. What happened? Where was it? Why do we associate Argentina with steak? What's the story behind curries in India? It is brilliant. It's got tips by experts like Yotam Otelengi, and it is just a normal paperback at a reasonable good price at 95 Rand. And it's somewhere, it won the, the Gourmand Awards for the best UK culinary travel book. So I think I can't recommend it highly enough. That is The Edible Atlas by Mina Holland, and it's 95 Rand. Then the last book I'm just going to mention 
It's by Paul Torday. And Paul Torday, I don't know whether you remember, wrote Salmon Fishing in the Yemen. That turned into a lovely, romantic, funny movie that did extremely well in, in the cinema and the box office. And his book was even better. This is 375, the new Paul Torday. It's called The Death of an Owl. And it is an ecological, political thriller. And I won't say more than that. It's brilliant reading, as usual. He writes extremely well. That's The Death of an Owl by Piers Torday, and it's 375. Keep reading. Cheers. Have a good day. John Hanks, let's chat about your brilliant and very topical book. It's called Operation Lock and the War on Rhino Poaching. John, you're an astonishing man. This is an explosive book. It details your 25 years in the Rhino War. It's been interesting to know how many rhino lives you've saved. That would be, yeah. You're a zoologist with a Cambridge PhD, and you've had, gosh, over 45 years in a wide variety of conservation and research projects around Africa. You've been Chief Professional Officer for the Natal Parks Board, Professor and Head of the Department of Biological Sciences at the University of Natal, the director of the Africa program for World Wildlife Fund International, chief executive of World Wildlife South Africa, and the first executive director of the Peace Parks Foundation. Phew, that took a long time to say. Aren't we, aren't we lucky to have caught you between all those aeroplanes and four by fours and bushwhacking? John, tell us the genesis of Operation Lock. Well, Operation Lock was an initiative that was started in 1986 to try to find out who are the people behind the illegal trade in the rhino horn. It was a very controversial project because it was sensitive to start investigating the trade. The organization I worked for at the time, WWF, was not too enthusiastic about me undertaking this work. So we had to get somebody to fund it and pretend it was a project that had nothing to do with the organization. It started up. It started to find out a lot of information about people involved in the trade. But then the cover was blown and it had to come to a stop. But during the whole time this operation was running, I kept meticulous notes. I always have kept records. And with the recent surge in rhino poaching and all the controversy about should or should there not be a legal trade, I decided that I should put down the history of this whole operation. And that's what Operation Lock is all about. Very impressive, very disturbing. And, John, how much a kilo is a rhino horn worth now? Well, it's round about $64,000 a kilogram. And a lot of people don't appreciate that. It has an incredible value. Well, yes, and you, therefore, in a way, I suppose, one could say that in Operation Lock, you criticise some of the current anti-poaching policies, and instead you make a very strong case and a very seductive case for legal trade in Rhino Horn. Well, I'm glad you find it a good argument, and I'm glad you, I hope you anyway, are agreeing with what is proposed in the final chapter. Yes, it's, it's, uh, it's not everyone is in agreement, but I think people need to understand the basis for this decision. If you think of a rhino being poached, it is shot, killed, its horn hacked off, and that's a dead rhino. And when you tell people that you can immobilize a rhino, 
and when it's immobilized without any pain to the animal, you can cut off the horn well above the skin line. It feels no pain, give it an antidote, and five minutes later, it's back on its feet. Now, that horn regrows, and you can do the same thing about eight or nine times during the animal's life. So that's a kilogram of horn a time for male, and that's a lot of money. And the beauty of this is that, that money can go back into the people who are charged with looking after these animals. And at the moment, there are round about 6,000 rhinos on private land in this country. A lot of people don't realize that. More rhinos than the rest of Africa put together. And those private landowners are getting nothing from the sacrifices they're making to look after these animals. Their security costs have gone through the roof. Some of them are spending quarter of a million rand a month on looking after these rhinos. It's not sustainable. So why not give them the option of allowing the horn to be harvested, cut off, and then sold in a strictly controlled legal market? And I stress it has to be a strictly controlled legal market so that you can make some attempt to deal with the criminal syndicates that driving the trade at present. Nobody's suggesting that this will stop rhino poaching, but I think it will go a long way to making sure money goes back to where it's needed. And let me stress that the major conservation agencies in South Africa, sand parks, the KZN, wildlife people, majority of private landowners are very much in favor of this option. And the people who are opposing it are mainly organizations from outside of Africa who have no committed interest to looking after these animals. They think for various reasons it shouldn't be done, but they don't come up with the alternative of where the money is going to come from. What are their reasons for opposing it? I think they don't like the thought of a rhino with his horn cut off moving around in the field, but we say to them, would you rather have a rhino with his horn cut off without feeling any pain, or would you rather see the dead rhino on the ground? And the answer to me, well, it's a no-brainer. Of course, World Wildlife was Prince Bernard, Prince Philip. They were good guys at the top then. I mean, there was a bit of a scandal about Prince Bernard, but they were good guys to be at the top. Yes, indeed. I think there's no doubt about um, the total commitment of Prince Philip and also Prince Bernard. He spent a lot of time in the field. He was genuinely interested in conservation, and he was the one who funded Operation Knockout of his private funds. And he did this because he really believed that unless we found the middlemen driving the trade and identify them, we were never, ever going to get it right. That was a, a pre-record with John Hanks before this new ruling that trade in rhino horn will now be legal in South Africa, though not abroad. We have John on the line. John, your thoughts? Thank you, Gory. The international trade in rhino horn has actually been banned since 1977 among the now 182 member countries of what's called the Convention on the International Trade in Endangered Species, uh, abbreviation of CITES, and this is a body that governs the international wildlife trade. Now, the important point is that each country can decide if it wants to sell horn internally, and South Africa has now done this. I think this is a step in the right direction if the rhino owners and the conservation agencies that are most desperate for funds to continue protecting their rhinos can find buyers within South Africa. Because remember, it's only internally. They can't sell the rhino horn to people outside the country. 
The important point is that although a big effort is being made to stop the demand for rhino horn, demand is not going to drop fast enough or far enough in the foreseeable future to really offer rhinos this respite from poaching. A ban in the international legal trade in rhino horn mainly serves to enrich the criminal syndicates. And unfortunately, what happens, it, it deprives the people who are looking after the rhinos in the field of the funds that are so necessary to protect them. Swaziland has actually applied to CITES to sell rhino horns on the international market. And I hope that after the next conference of the parties in CITES, which will be in South Africa in September, we will be able to open a legal trade for Swaziland. The rhino custodians are desperate for financial assistance throughout Africa, and the important point everyone should appreciate is that legal trade can supply these funds without a single animal having to be killed. And just to remind you that John's book is called Operation Lock and the War on Rhino Poaching. And now here's our easy-peasy question. To win one of two 200 rand Wordsworth Books vouchers. This month is the winter solstice, the longest day. Is it June 31? Is it June 21? We're looking forward to your calls on 021-401-1013. Vanessa Levenstein, two books, both exploring the quest for love and belonging. Amongst the intelligentsia, Alain de Botton is a subject of debate. Phony or fabulous, the Swiss-born British philosopher has received mixed reviews. However, it hasn't stopped him from becoming a best-selling author. More than 20 years after writing his first book, Essays in Love, he has returned to the subject matter of love with his new book, The Course of Love, a novel. From the start, I loved this book. Part novel, part philosophical narrative, the story follows the relationship between Rabir and Kirsten. They meet, fall in love, marry, have kids, become estranged, and have to find each other again. Ironically, it's the predictability of the narrative that makes for such gripping reading. We don't read to find out what is going to happen next. Rather, we read to find out what is happening now, in the minds and hearts of the two protagonists. During the course of the book, de Baton breaks the storyline and philosophizes about his protagonist's stage in the course of their love journey. It's easy to follow the breaking narrative, and his philosophical observations are in italics. His observations on both relationships and parenting reminds me of a postage stamp painting, a miniature picture yet so detailed. On marriage, to a shameful extent, the charm of marriage boils down to how unpleasant it is to be alone. On becoming new parents, and this was my favorite one, the average home appliance comes with more detailed instructions than a baby. De Baton explores what brings people together and what almost miraculously keeps them together. He holds up a starkly lit mirror which reflects the course of love as an invisible bond that is only as strong as the two people entwined in its grip. Staying with the theme of love, this time a maternal love. Finding Martha Lost by Caroline Wallace is a magical tale about the journey a mother and daughter undertake to find each other. The story is set in Liverpool Station, where Martha Lost was abandoned at the age of three months old. She is raised by a tyrannical foster mother who emotionally and physically abuses her. Martha was indoctrinated into believing that if she was ever to leave the station, it would collapse and people would die. 
As a result, Martha has never left Liverpool Station and never been to school, never felt sunshine on her skin. Yet, what makes Martha's story so utterly charming is that she finds such delight in her surroundings. The lost property office is her safe space where she feels a close kingship with the objects that are like her, lost or abandoned. Her salvation lies with her close friend Elizabeth and Martha's secret book collection. Sometimes I wish I could listen to the story that each of these books can tell, not the narratives inside them, but their journeys to get here. When Martha's foster mother dies, she is free to explore the world outside the station. Set in Liverpool in the 70s, the soundtrack of the Beatles weaves into the story via an unsavory journalist, Max. The naive and trusting Martha is easy prey for him. Yet, in the tradition of all good fairy tales, Martha meets an unlikely assortment of society's misfits who come to her aid. A Roman soldier, a homeless man, as well as her ever-loyal friend, Elizabeth. While thoroughly enjoyable, the book is not without problems. Martha, though magical, is believable. Yet most of the characters around her are one-dimensional. Clearly the author played with fairy tale archetypes, but this resulted in a superficial sketch as opposed to fleshed out characterization. Giving the stories a ready far-reaching plot, it would have made for far more meaningful reading if the supporting cast were more authentic. Finding Martha Lost, in spite of its flaws, is a memorable read. The protagonist's ability to find the light and the dark shadows of a railway station is a beautiful metaphor and had me rooting for Martha Lost to find what she was looking for. Philip Dodders, you and South African novelist, in fact, actually just welcome Philip Dodders and Christopher Booker. Christopher Hope, Jim Fish is the name of the book and I like the subtitle, Jim Fish or Ten Years on the Wrong Side of History. I'm not sure if we're on the wrong side of history or if we're on the wrong side of political correctness. And I'm wondering, Christopher, is maybe uh, you'll take as a compliment when I say that you must be the prime cynic when it comes to, or is it a Machiavellian approach to fear and love and politics? How would you describe this book? I, th I think, in a way, that's quite a fair description, except that I always remember Oscar Wilde's remark about the difference between cynicism and scepticism. A cynic, he said, was somebody who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And this book is it's my tribute, among other things, to the travel I've done over the years, but it's also my tribute to Voltaire, who wrote Candide, which is a book that has fascinated me forever. And I wanted to, in a sense, write my own version of it. And you know, there's a wonderfully icy comic tone in much of Candide. You know, when it, Candide arrives in England and he finds them hanging one of their admirals, He's rather puzzled being a, a naive young fellow. And he says, what are they doing? And somebody says, don't worry. The British are always doing this. They hang an admiral from time to time to encourage the others. Well, I'm not sure how encouraging you are about the state of affairs in South Africa, but also the state of the world. Maybe you'd like to comment on... You say you did a lot of travelling, and I've noted that. You know, you say you took a lot of notes while you were travelling. So these are the areas that you obviously were in and you were commenting on. Yes, and I, I, I set the book back in order to give my... I set it between 1984 and 1994 in order to give myself a, a bit of perspective because otherwise one is too close to the overheated moment to, to look at it clearly. Um, uh, yes, I wanted to combine the places in which I've lived, which include 
odd places like Moscow and East Berlin when the war came down and a little time in the Congo and places like that and of course South Africa, my my own country Um, and I wanted to look at what happens when people obtain too much power how it corrupts and perverts and how a young innocent abroad would manage faced by the incurable cruelty of so much but at the same time I didn't want to write a tragedy I wanted to write a dark icy comedy Black it certainly is and some of your politicians I think are even more Teflon coated than we have, they seem to be able to resurrect themselves in strange places and strange ways would you like to comment on that? (laughs) They do, perhaps my favourite is um, Marshal Mobutu, Seseseke Mobutu, who I knew a little bit. I once met on an aeroplane and I wanted to talk politics to him. He was known, not affectionately to his enemies, as a, a safe box and a fur hat. But we were on this plane together and his, what he wanted to talk to me about was the sorts of champagne I most enjoyed, which was sort of quite interesting given uh, the state of his own country at the time. And the only way a satirist or somebody who sees the odd side of things can even write about them is in a way to see them through the prism of comedy even if that comedy is dark and even if that comedy is sharp it's a way of going that I far prefer and when one looks at the present state of politics not only in this country but elsewhere in the States or in Europe or in India (laughs) uh, if you're a writer of the sort I am you tend to make notes and those notes tend to have a humorous tinge rather than a tragic tinge. Well, we're going to have to one day do a whole discussion about humour because quite honestly, this is not funny. I mean, what exactly are these groups fighting for, Jim Fish asked? Land or treasure or power? And I presume your answer is going to be all of that. Well, absolutely all of that. And again, that particular section you read from, you know, is very close to the sorts of civil war that was going on at the time in places like Liberia. So I wanted to be both true to the times, but I also wanted to show the absurdity, the surreal nature of the sorts of tragedies that were unfolding through the eyes of an incorrigibly naive young man who can only see the good in just about everything. Well, I think we'll leave it on that positive note. But this is really... I don't think you know, it's regarded as a fable you, some commenter made. I think it's a sort of cynical allegory, political satire, and all of the above. And we're very grateful to Christopher Hope for Jim Fish, or 10 Years on the Wrong Side of History. Ah, oh, the great Christopher Hope. <laughs> and here again is our easy-peasy competition question to win one of two 200-round Wordsworth Books vouchers. This month is the winter solstice. The longest day. Is it June 31? Is it June 21? We're looking forward to your calls on 021 401 1013. Philippa Schaefitz, you've chosen this collection of traditional Cape Malay recipes, carefully documented by Karima Isaacs in memory of her beloved father. My Cape Malay Kitchen by Karima Isaacs, published by Stroke Lifestyle priced at 295 rand. It's a time of year to enjoy breedies, curries, flaky pies, all winter comfort foods, some chilly hot, some mildly tantalizing, others gently spiced. I love Cape Malay food, well prepared, and this book will certainly teach you the art. The book is dedicated to Karima's late father, 
The full title is Cooking for My Father in My Cape Malay Kitchen. The last six months, she writes, before he died, was spent cooking all of the foods that he loved, with a promise that I would one day write this book, share my recipes, and tell our story. It's a straightforward, easy-to-follow collection of traditional Cape Malay recipes. Karima shares many details and practical tips. For a breedy, choose meat that becomes meltingly tender when cooked for a long time. Shoulder of lamb, thick rib or lamb shank are all good. A family secret is adding one tablespoon oil to the breedy five minutes before serving, resulting in a rich and silky sauce. I like the way she describes a medium onion as the size of a lemon and a large one the size of an orange. For the much-loved cauliflower breedy, she cuts the cauliflower into palm-sized portions. Cape Malay curries are milder than Durban and Indian curries. Tomatoes are added to make a thicker gravy and sugar to offset the acidity of the tomatoes. Fresh chilies are added for flavour, not heat. There are recipes for all the favourites, mutton curry, mince curry, dal curry, for special occasions, seafood curries. Cape Malay curries are served with roti or rice, and on the side a sambal, tomato and onion salad, and a pickle, a vegetable acha. When adding coriander to a curry, Karima adds a chopped fresh herb just before serving. There is a chapter on Cape Malay classics, the heritage recipes that came from Malaysia and Indonesia, omensa ondati conversa, that's cabbage-wrapped meatballs, Babuti, always served with sweet yellow rice. Denang flace with its sweet and sour tamarind-based sauce, gently infused with clove, bay leaf, cinnamon and cardamom. Mavrum with all its spices. It's made for Eid and weddings. Karima cooked it for her own wedding for 500 guests. There are the everyday smokies, literally braised, referring to the basic sauce of onions, tomato, garlic, and sometimes a green chili, to which anything could be added from meat to fish or just eggs. Quick to make, they are the perfect solution for unexpected guests. With plenty of time, there are samosas, pies with homemade flaky pastry, lambriani, always for id. When it comes to sweet treats, the irresistible spiced Koo Sisters, cinnamon-spiced coconut-filled pancakes, aromatic scorch vermicelli. There's a plain Madeira loaf, a favourite of her father's, and a moist date and walnut loaf. Dates are plentiful in Dubai, so she makes it often. It's here she now lives with her husband and two teenage sons, a long way from Scotchclough in Boer the Cape Malay quarter of Cape Town, where she was born and grew up. Mike Fitzjames. Okay. Do your worst to scare the living daylights out of us. Hello, Gory. This month I have three excellent books for the listeners to enjoy. My first choice is Acts of Violence by James Craig. This is the tenth Inspector Carlyle novel, and like all the previous books in the series, it is fast and furious and beautifully crafted. Michael Nicholson is a smooth and very savvy fixer, gainfully employed doing favors for the rich and famous in booming China. 
when he makes the bad mistake for an expat of getting too close to one of his clients, namely the wife of a leading Communist Party official, the now aging Lotario fears for his life as the vengeful husband decides to put his house in order. Now a domestic dispute from the other side of the world results in a shootout in a penthouse in Chelsea, and an ex-cop called Marvin Taylor is one of the victims. Enter Inspector John Carlyle. As little more than a casual unlocker until Taylor's widow turns up and seeks answers. The inspector is drawn into a maze of dealing and double-dealing, much to the dismay of his superiors, who want him to focus on another case, that case involving a suspected former German terrorist. This is, indeed, a cracking read from cover to cover. My second choice is Beloved Poison by E.S. Thompson. This is a change of pace and time, but equally fascinating, as it is set in the era of apothecaries, infirmaries, and exceptionally rudimentary medicine and treatments. It's a mystery so beautifully written that in no time at all the reader is swept into the heart of the story. Ramshackle and crumbling, trapped in the past and resisting the future, St. Saviour's Infirmary awaits demolition. Inside its stinking wards and cramped corridors, the doctors bicker and fight. Ambition, jealousy and hatred seep beneath the outward veneer of professional courtesy. Always an outsider, and with a secret of her own to hide, apothecary Jem Flockhart observes everything, but says little. Arrive a mystery. Six tiny coffins are uncovered. Inside each is a handful of dried flowers and a bundle of mouldering rags. When Jem discovers these strange relics, hidden inside the infirmary's old chapel, her drive to understand their meaning prizes open the long-forgotten past, but this has fatal consequences. This was a wonderfully crafted tale. My third choice is A Song for Drowned Souls by Bernard Minier. Marsac is a quiet town in the Pyrenees, known for its elite university. But when one of its professors is found drowned in her bath, it becomes clear that the tranquil surface is just another lie. The chief suspect in this case is the son of the former university sweetheart of Commandant Surveys. Now she implores him to investigate, and he cannot refuse her plea. As the investigation proceeds, it becomes apparent that to close the case, Commandant Serres must delve into his own past and reopen old wounds. This will be the most dangerous and highly personal investigation of his successful career. You just have to keep guessing. My choices this month were Acts of Violence by James Craig, Beloved Poison by E.S. Thompson, and A Song for Drowned Souls by Bernard Minier.
All the best. Very strange title, that bee-loved poison. Anyway, Melvin Minar, Dan and Lordy's Sightings of the Sacred. The subtitle of this fine, elegantly produced book is Cattle in Uganda, Madagascar and India. That matter-of-fact, husbandry-like description is a clever and delicious fit to the loaded poetic title of Daniel Nodia's photographic essay called Sightings of the Sacred. In that gentle alliteration, one picks up something of the awe in which this bright young local photographer, yes, he's a Capetonian, gazes at the world of man and beast through his lens. And it's the latter that it gives the space of some sublime imagery. Nodia has spelled out his philosophy simply and directly from his first work, instantly track-stopping photographs of the famed dog, the Carnus Africanus, everywhere in Africa. His first show at the local Stevenson Gallery announced a talented artist with moral coil. Placed central to and in the African landscapes that they fleetingly inhabit, sometimes or not, as man's cohort, Nodia elevated the dogs in the eyes of the beholders, and through poise and light, decor and the captured moment, and a skilled artist's eye for the emotional charge, confirmed on them the elegance of presence and power. It was as if the world was seeing these creatures anew. Nodia explained his intrigue with these free-running dogs, vis-a-vis the cultured high breeds and their comfortable homes in human middle class, as a kind of childlike connection with nature. In the new book, like his earlier Animal Farm by the prestige art publisher Prestel, he explains it eloquently, and I quote, Observing cattle is for me a form of meditation, a type of therapy that is actuated through the intense visual engagement. End of quote. As observers of his art, we are, in a manner of speaking, guests of that zoological and ethological engagement, and what a joy it is. The book is in three parts, a series of portraits of the famous Ankole cattle of Uganda, once hunted by big-game hunters for their magnificent horns, the hard-working zebu in Madagascar, and, of course, those in India, where the beast's social position is defined in so many and glorious ways. Just how fine a photographer Nodia is comes out in the sometimes subliminal formality of the compositions of his images. The majestic Ancoli's cow's great horns form a circle, for example, and becomes the focus of the entire picture. Between the points, a whiff of cloud suggests a charge. One ear is tilted coyly, the eyes fixed firmly on the center of the photographer's viewpoint. Nodia's photographs vibrantly modern in the sense that they reactivate the moral spark between man and animal also echoes in a delightful way across the centuries when Africa's animals were the fascination of Europe's great traveler, explorer, writer, recorders. Specifically in his clear sculptural presentations of the animals, he seems inspired by the British wildlife artist Samuel Daniel, a series of fabulous drawings he made on a visit between 1804 and 1805 is recorded in African scenery and animals. A soft idealism colors Daniel's images, and Nodia's crafted portraits has a similar feel of message in the image. It is a beautiful book. Didn't you love that when uh, Melvin's calls it a f- watching cattle is a form of meditation? Gorgeous. Beverly Rossmuller, the brand new, grand new Joyce Carol Oates. 
all of us have done things we'd rather forget. But what if that were literally true? What if we kept on losing our daily memories? And if we did, would we be the same person we once were? Award-winning author Joyce Carol Oates has posited a difficult and unusual problem in her latest book, The Man Without a Shadow. Eli Hoops has suffered a profound traumatic injury to his brain after a brief illness and is incapable of recalling the present and immediate past. He is forever locked in the world he inhabited as a 30-something rich and charming man. His memory is only 70 seconds long. Every single day, every familiar person he meets is new and unknown to him. During a conversation, if he is momentarily distracted, he has absolutely no recollection of the person in front of him or what has just happened. Yet his early memories, until his serious brain illness, remain more or less intact, with one puzzling exception, the memory of a young girl lying drowned in a lake. The book is written from the perspective of a young neuropsychologist, Margot Sharp, who first meets this profound amnesiac in 1965. She will chart the conversations of this pleasant, puzzling man, fall in love with him, and spend a lonely but very successful career devoting herself to him and charting his progress, or lack thereof. On his deathbed more than 30 years later, he will not recognize her, nor their decades-long relationship. As in all the books by Oates, there are serious issues beneath. At what point does scientific curiosity and concern turn into obsession? In caring for her patient and his unique needs, does Margot overstep her professional duties and violate his vulnerabilities? Or does she provide the comfort this lonely man, caught eternally in a speck of time that never grows or changes, so badly needs? And what about his vision of the drowned girl in the water? Has that anything to do with this courteous and well-groomed man who lives with his wealthy patrician aunt? Oates never flinches from serious and even offensive subjects. Though she will be 78 this month of June, her pen, she writes in longhand, is as pointed as ever. Her mastery is cohesive, fluent and cutting as it has always been. After the death of her first husband, a long marriage, she married a neuroscientist, Charles Gross, in 2009. It is reasonable to assume that her interest in The Man Without a Shadow was piqued by her second husband's career. Perhaps the most important question in the book asks this. Was Eli, the man with no memory, exploited by Margot and her scientific colleagues? He was not only her patient and the subject of her many academic successes, but also the only person this also lonely woman ever loved. Margot is convinced by the strength of her feelings for him that she has not exploited him. But is this true? Did the extra care she gave him, including the physical intimacy, help him? Or did she take advantage of Eli for her own satisfaction? The writing is crisp, smooth, finely calibrated. Oates is considered one of North America's finest writers and is frequently mentioned as a Nobel Prize possibility. In The Man Without a Shadow, she once again demonstrates her full powers as an author and master of the narrative.
fine reading as always and that's it then it was very good to be with you all we celebrate as you all knew the winter solstice on june 21 and from me gory bows taylor it's cuddle up with a cozy book book choice was proudly brought to you by wordsworth books hi i'm andrew from wordsworth books we have bookshops that are a bit different we have staff that are a bit different we love our customers and we're passionate about our books from paperbacks at 59 rand to leonardo da vinci at 2000 rand our selection is remarkable and we sell special stationery as well wordsworth we sell books the old-fashioned way we read them FM.